And hello and welcome to episode number four of Chips and Channels. Starting things off this week, taking a look at the fact that sometimes you have to get through some of the unpleasant stories to find the hope and positive waiting on the other side. In my first story, the first story for this episode, Cristiano Ronaldo returned to soccer for his first game following his baby boy's death. The soccer star, who is 37 and currently playing for Manchester United, joined his teams on the field on April 23rd. Ronaldo scored 34 minutes in the game that United would eventually lose 3-1. It ended up being Ronaldo's 100th goal in the Premier League. And at the moment, he tilted his hands up towards the sky and pointed, and many fans believe that this was a tribute to his son. Ronaldo later appeared to confirm this theory when he tweeted a photo of that moment and added a red heart emoji. It was just five days earlier, on April 18th, that Ronaldo and his partner, Georgina Rodriguez, had announced the passing away of their newborn son. Back in October, they had revealed that they were expecting twins. They went on to say, It is with our deepest sadness we have to announce that our baby boy has passed away. It is the greatest pain that any parent can feel. Only the birth of our baby girl gives us strength to live this moment with some hope and happiness. They went on to say, We would like to thank the doctors and nurses for all their expert care and support. We are all devastated at this loss, and we kindly ask for privacy at this very difficult time. The statement concluded with, Our baby boy, you are our angel. We will always love you. Three days after that heartbreaking news, the couple went on to post a photo of their family, including their new baby girl, and Ronaldo's son, Cristiano Jr., 11, twins Mateo and Ava, 4, and his first daughter with Georgina, Alana, age 4. Home sweet home, Gio and our baby girl are finally together with us, the post read. We want to thank everyone for all the kind words and gestures. Your support is very important, and we all felt the love and respect that you have for our family. Now it's time to be grateful for the life that we've just welcomed into this world. I am not a parent. I have fur babies, dogs. I am an uncle, and I have many friends who have children, and I've been lucky enough to witness their highs and lows as a friend, an uncle, a cousin. But I cannot imagine what this kind of loss must be, what it must feel like, what it must be like for the twin who has lost a sibling and a connection. I do know that any family built on love and compassion can oftentimes find that those are the only tools needed to overcome heartache, heartbreak, loss, and tragedy. I know that they've probably been the only two places that I have been confidently able to stand when there has been sadness or heartache or loss for me or someone I care about. Ronaldo is one of those players who embodies the best possibility 
for a soccer player on the field, the greatest of accomplishments. And I think in that way, he is a connection to us all in that he is living the hope and dream that we had all aspired to at some point in our lives. Sometimes we reach it, sometimes we do not. But that shared empathy, I think, can make this moment and the reaction from fans feel just as equally heartfelt for Ronaldo, knowing that there are so many who are encouraged and inspired by all that he does and want him to know how much they want to be there for him as much as he has given to them. There is still conflict in the Ukraine. There are still daily reports of actions, violence, aggression. I mean, you don't have to look far to find a new update or read a new report. And there are many instances now being reported of Ukraine pushing back in areas and a new journey will begin when that's accomplished. Every time Ukraine forces are able to drive back Russian forces and reclaim parts of their country, there will be a process of recovery followed by rebuilding. And that's an issue that is currently facing the town of Chernihiv. It was, okay, it is the largest Ukrainian city to have been freed from Russian occupation. I kind of stumbled around the phrasing there, but in short, it is the largest Ukrainian city that has been freed from Russian occupation. Before the uh, onslaught, before the assault, the population of the city was around 280,000. Since being freed for more than a month, only a third of that figure still remains. 700 people have lost their lives, according to official sources. Uh, before the Russian invasion, the city was not well known around the world. It is situated 150 kilometers northeast of Kiev and 60 kilometers from the border with Belarus on the banks of the Desna River. In Ukraine, Chernihiv was known for its wonderful churches and chic parks and great promenades by the river. And this new reality is proving especially challenging, starting with the fact that three weeks without electricity or running water, on top of huge craters, wrecked buildings and structures, literal mountains of steel, concrete, glass, and plastic, um, torn, broken posters, paintings, and the destroyed buildings of hospitals and schools and libraries, residential blocks. And one of the places that also lies in ruin is the local football ground. It's been described by many as a perfect illustration of the effects that the Russian invasion has had on the people in Ukraine. Now, before the bombs had destroyed it, this was a field that could hold 12,000 people, and the local side, FC Desna, played in the Ukrainian Premier League, as did a women's national side. Since being reduced to rubble, there are only the fragments and remnants of the stands, the broken windows, meter-long and longer cracks throughout the stadium, um, gym equipment and other accessories just 
sort of strewn about. Alexander Lomako, who is Chernihiv's regional governor, says that at least five rockets hit the stadium. It's all destroyed. And this is civil infrastructure. The club had no military connections. There were no soldiers, no equipment, nothing. We use this complex for adults as well as children. And from February 24th on, Chernihiv was under constant shelling. And this has left Lomako asking, all the buildings have been bombed, are part of civil infrastructure, so what will the kids do now? Where will they train once the war is over? Um, a regional governor, a deputy regional governor by the name of Dmitro Ivanov, went on to explain that the enemy blew up the bridge over the Desna River, turning Chernihiv into an island, and then Russians circled the city and started bombing our food supplies, humanitarian aid, gas stations, there was no electricity. Back in 2019-2020, Desna had enjoyed their best ever campaign, qualifying for Europe after finishing fourth in the league. They had played German club Wolfsburg in the third preliminary round of the Europa League before losing 2-0 in a single-leg qualifier because of the certain COVID restrictions that have been placed on the tournament. And that the team is based in a stadium with a proud history and a former name linked to 1961 Yuri Gagarin, who in that year was the first human to travel into space. And at 27 years old, he was given the Order of Lenin, the title of the hero of the Soviet Union. Three years later, he visited the stadium in Chernihiv to meet his fellow cosmonaut, Andrian Nikolaev. And because that moment needed to be marked, the stadium was named after Gagarin. Later, it was renamed to the Olympic Sports Training Center, but locals still call it Gagarin. And it is something that has made an imprint on the community. Since then, local officials and national authorities have said that the club and the stadium will be rebuilt. Culture Minister Alexander Kachenko has talks with his German counterparts who have assured him of their support. Borussia Dortmund have also promised to help out. And according to Chichenko, sorry, Kachenko, uh, they have not forgotten Andrei Yomolenko, the West Ham forward who grew up in Chernihiv and started his professional career with Desna before moving on to Dynamo Kiev and Dortmund. Help may be on the way, but Desna supporters have already gathered to clearing up at the stadium. At the weekend, a symbolic amateur match was even organized. And on the side of the pitch where the bombs did not land, the field was still a place where players could play, laugh, dance, and work. Together with Mariupol, Kharkiv, Chernihiv is now a hero city. Following a decision by the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukrainian soldiers have promised the city's residents the Russians will not return. But having witnessed just how painful things have been, people are afraid. Desna supporter Oleg said, We don't know when and how this war will end. We are normal people, but our normal lives have been taken away. We just don't understand why someone would attack and kill innocent civilians. I think that one of the great dreams of any athlete, of any person pursuing the thing that they love and the reasons why they love it, is the chance that it can lead to more. Because so often in Careers that are based on athletic performance, there's a kind of limited time frame in which things can occur. 
and there's an entire life to be lived once that career in sports has come to an end. In Diamandiado, sorry, Diamandiadio, Senegal, there is a man by the name of Alou Cisse, and he was standing on the sidelines of the brand new national stadium, waving his arms at 50,000 fans and pushing, uh, encouraging, driving them to be even louder. Fans responded, yelling, screaming, matching his request. And as the pitch rose to a fervor, Senegal, defeated its fiercest rival, Egypt, and earned a qualifying spot in Soccer's World Cup beginning this November in Qatar. This was a big moment. There was a lot of controversy around the game, laser laser pointers, as they're called, being directed, if not shined, in the faces of Egypt's players, especially Mohamed Mo Salah, who performed poorly in penalty kicks, and this was something credited to it. But undeterred by the controversy, Mr. Cisse was grinning in a post-game news conference saying, when we are together, Senegal wins. Or going on to say, Umbulu Mui Gagner, unity brings victory. Senegal can thank a lot of its proud patriotism on many occasions to its national team, a soccer team where Mr. Cisse uh, was a former professional player. And he has taken his success with the team to be a part of a change in his country's community. According to Mr. Cisse, the barometer of the Senegalese society today is soccer. He said this in a recent interview with the New York Times while in the city of Diamaniadio and the new stadium. Both are new, both are on the outskirts of Dakar. He went on to say that people watch us play and they're proud to be Senegalese, proud to be African. It was Mr. Cisse who led a squad that won the Africa Cup of Nations earlier this year, which was the country's first soccer title. And he proved to the Senegalese people that one of their own could succeed where no one else had. This has also led to an interesting change when it comes to coaching. For a long time, many African national teams were coached by European managers, including Senegal's. But that has since been met with a shift that is embodied, if not led, by Mr. Cisse. Algeria, Zimbabwe, Sudan, Burkina Faso all feature a rising generation of African managers, and there are now 16 teams that have local coaches and three sub-Saharan African teams going to Qatar later this year. Cameroon, Ghana, and Senegal all have former national players as their managers. A former teammate of Mr. Cisse's, Ferdinand Coley, said more and more professional players on the continent want to be coaches. Local expertise is gaining ground. 
Now, Mr. Cisse has a very interesting history. He was born in the southern region of Casamance in 1976 before moving to France when he was nine and growing up in the suburbs of Paris, one of the world's best-regarded pools of soccer talent. Similar to many African players, his trajectory uh, involved joining youth academies. And Mr. Cisse says that when I was out, I was French, but at home I was truly Senegalese. Mr. Cisse joined the Youth Academy of Lille in northern France at 14, played in French and English clubs in the 90s and 2000s, among them French powerhouse Paris Saint-Germain, Portsmouth, and Birmingham City in the English Premier League. And at the 2002 World Cup, he captained Senegalese and its squad of players in its first World Cup where they stunned France, the, re the world champions at the time, in a surprise victory that many refer to with fond nostalgia. Senegal, in that cup, went on to reach the quarterfinals, which is the team's biggest achievement to date in that competition. Now he is seeking to build a bridge between the binationals who moved to France in their youth like him and the locals who were raised in the country of Senegal to create a connection that they can all use to strengthen their team and their sports programs. Mr. Cisse had taken over the team in 2015, and when he did, Senegal had been performing badly at the Africa Cup of Nations and had failed to qualify for the last three World Cup editions. All of Mr. Cisse's predecessors were fired one immediately after the other. It is now seven years later, and the coach, who is now nicknamed El Tactico for an efficient but restrained approach to the game, is bringing Senegal to its third World Cup and his second one as a coach. It is now an era where African teams are no longer observing, he says, and one will win the coveted trophy one day. He goes on to ask, why not us? Um... Really enjoyed reading more about Mr. Cisse, about the great comments from those like uh, Reggie Boguer, who is a former French youth coach of Mr. Cisse at Lille and is now the deputy on the Senegalese team. And he reflected on the mission that Mr. Cisse had brought to the players and the team. It's about knowing the economy, the culture, the education, and the history of your country, he says. Mr. Cizé is easy to spot in most images. He wears shiny white sneakers, thick black square glasses. He keeps his dreadlocks under New York Yankees or a Team Senegal cap, which gives him what some have described, especially the New York Times, as the heir of a cool father. He is the father of five children, and in descriptions, he has made it clear that that can sometimes be as challenging, if not more challenging, than coaching the national team. If Mr. Cizé has been recognized for his part in some of Senegal's biggest successes, he has also experienced many, if not a great deal, of its worst traumas. It was in 2002 when he lost 11 relatives in a shipwreck that killed more than 1,800 passengers off the coasts of Senegal and Gambia. 
Senegal's victory at the Africa Cup of Nations earlier this year came 20 years after Mr. Cisse missed a penalty in the final game of the same tournament, depriving the team of its first trophy back then and haunting him with a memory that has meant many long nights. Since then, Senegal has enjoyed happier days on the pitch, its national pride on full display when it defeated Egypt, and it was said that some fans had slept outside the stadium the night before to make sure they got the best seats, while hours before kickoff, thousands more lined up to enter and the sound of whistles and drums had filled the air. Sally Diassi, who is a French Senegalese 30-year-old who lives in France and said she was visiting Senegal to support her favorite team, could not hold back her pleasure in describing how it's, quote, a great day for Senegal. The jubilation after the win against Egypt echoed the triumphant return of Senegalese players who had won the Africa Cup of Nations back in February, tens of thousands greeting them in the streets as they were paraded in Dakar. Cissé's staff, um, with some land, had invested in the community through the stadium, and they have been grateful to players who have given back, like Sadio Mane, who is the team's star and has built a hospital in his native village, and Kaladu Kulibalai, the captain who bought ambulances for his father's village, a veteran soccer journalist by the name of Salif Diallo, who has followed Mr. Cisse's career as player and coach, said, quote, players want to be role models in their own country. This team is changing the perception of that Senegalese have of themselves. Those who know Mr. Cisse say that once he is done with the national team, he will want to play a greater role for his country. He went on to say, I've tried to set an example. If a Senegalese player moves to Birmingham or Montpellier, or wherever I've played tomorrow, I hope he will be welcomed because they will remember that Alou Cisse was a good guy. Sexual harassment and a violation of ethics is an international problem, one that has reared its head recently through a FIFA investigatory chamber, which is looking into the actions of disgraced former Canada Youth National Team coach Bob Birarda, and allegations of sexual harassment against former Vancouver Whitecaps women's team coach Hubert Busby Jr. While FIFA is currently playing down the investigation, saying that the chamber is, quote, gathering information, end quote, according to The Guardian, Martin Ngoga, a Rwandan politician and lawyer who is chair of the chamber, has labeled the inquiries as, quote, investigation proceedings, end quote. A FIFA spokesperson told The Guardian that the investigation is only concerned with the actions of the two coaches, but according to multiple sources, the scope also includes Canada Soccer, the Vancouver Whitecaps, and reports from multiple players about the behavior of the two coaches over a number of years. This investigation was launched in March. It came after a FIFA meeting in Paris. And in that meeting, there were discussed claims of sex abuse by coaches and administrators. The investigation is in response to comments made by a Canada soccer board member who has said the organization did not take the Berarda incident seriously when players raised inappropriate behavior concerns in 2008 or at any time since that issue was raised. 
Berarda, the head coach of Canada's under-20 women's team in 2008, pled guilty in February to one count of sexual exploitation and three counts of sexual assault related to his time as coach in Vancouver and while coaching the national youth teams and the Whitecaps women's teams. Busby was suspended from his role as the head coach of the Jamaica women's national team last year after a report by The Guardian alleged he sexually harassed a player while he was in charge of the Whitecaps women's team in 2010 and 2011. Former soccer Canada soccer board member Leanne Nicole, who was also previously executive director at the Canadian Olympic Foundation, said the only people in the system with moral courage are the athletes. Repercussions need to be higher for people not willing to have moral courage. It's not just perpetrators who are the issue. It's the enablers. The Guardian has also revealed that following reports about Berarda's behavior from players in 2008, Canada soccer executives failed to follow the organization's robust rules and regulations regarding sexual harassment or sexual assault allegations. In fact, there are documents that outline strict process that The Guardian has and has seen, and these strict guidelines cover all participants in the sport across Canada, including executives, coaches, players, and volunteers. The organization broadly defines sexual harassment as including sexually degrading words you to describe a person, criminal conduct such as stalking or physical or sexual assault or abuse, promises or threats contingent on the performance of sexual favors, display of sexually explicit material or pictures, unwanted physical touching, unwanted sexual flirtation, advances or propositions. When the allegations were made against Berarda, Canada's soccer rules demanded the appointment of two individuals, a male and a female, to investigate the complaint. Written reports of the investigation should also have been provided to the executive committee, as well as to the complainants and to Berarda. But no written copy of any investigation exists in Canada soccer, and former employees or board members can confirm the existence of a report written into those actions. Reviews of the actions made by Ann Chopra, a Vancouver attorney, in 2008, no written copy exists, and Chopra presented a verbal review to a group of Canada Soccer and Whitecaps executives that included General Secretary Peter Monpoli, and attempts by The Guardian to contact Chopra have not been successful. However, at the time of the Berardi incident, Canada Soccer did have in place a harassment and prevention committee, and according to a handout given to attendees of the meeting of the organization in 2008, a listed member of the Harassment and Prevention Committee confirmed that the group did exist at the time. They did not want to speak on the record because they could not locate any documents relating to an investigation into Berarda. The person went on to say, I don't think anyone on our committee would have made a decision or necessarily known about Berarda's departure because we weren't asked. Coaches were fired all the time and went on to other things. Now, Canada's soccer rules and regulations also state that after receiving a written report, a case panel case review panel of three independent people comprising at least one man and a woman should deliver their findings, provide them to the executive committee, and recommend disciplinary action. However, Canada Soccer Executive Committee also needed to confirm the disciplinary recommendations and then place a copy of the report, personnel file of the individuals, but neither Berarda or Bosby received disciplinary action after reports were made about their behavior, and they were released from their roles for undisclosed reasons, going on to coach girls and women elsewhere in both Canada and the United States. A document obtained by The Guardian 
listing the status of coaches in Canada shows Berardo retained his B-level license, executed by Canada Soccer, until at least 2017, even though the organization and high-level executives knew about inappropriate and predatory behavior. In an email statement, Canada Soccer claimed that Berardo's B-license expired in 2011, yet the Canada Soccer Coach Licensing Program status check, updated in 2017, that includes 2016 graduates of the program, shows Berarda as a 2006 B license recipient. A license is considered an imperative for any professional coach to hold, especially when working with elite-level teams. The Canada Soccer Status Check, described as updated quarterly, in quotes, states its purpose is to verify the certification of all coaches and to, quote, license coaches who may be interested in working with the organization. The story goes into greater detail, explaining how many missteps and how many times information that should have been provided was not provided. And sadly, there is very little to show that the correct actions were taken, that the right things were done on the part of the complainants. And it was really interesting to uh, hear this comment at the end of the story from Nicole, Nicolet saying, show me the report and the action that was taken. Berardi continued to coach in this country and Canada soccer is the duty bearer of the sport in this country. What does serious mean? Someone put their hand up and explained to these women how they took it seriously. What were the actions taken? Berarda continued to coach. Last year, Canada Soccer hired McLaren Global Sports Solutions to review how the organization handled allegations in 2008, and that review is due this month. After a report by The Guardian back in October, Major League Soccer employed Toronto law firm Ruben Tomlinson to review how the Vancouver Whitecaps handled allegations of misconduct brought by members of the Whitecaps women's team in 2008 and 2011 against Berarda and Busby, and no date has been announced for findings. Meanwhile, Berarda will be sentenced later this year. So I'm curious what you think about the start time for a game. I feel that, for me, what time a game starts is something I have little control over, and because I'm prone to getting up early and watching English Premier League games or other teams competing at an earlier time of the day for me, simply because I know the game is taking place in another part of the world where the time is reflective of the local community. It's not something I consider as much, and sometimes I just know there's games I'm going to miss because that's how life gets in the way. However, what about when it comes to a game that's being played on local turf and might not be at what many would consider an optimal time, especially if you're looking for viewership? Well, that was the issue when O.L. Reigns forward Bethany Balser took to Twitter on Thursday afternoon calling out the NWSL and CBS for the start time for the upcoming Challenge Cup final. The Reign became the first team to clinch a spot in the Challenge Cup semifinals. The group stage of the preseason tournament concludes this week with semifinals set for Wednesday, May 4th and a final on Saturday, May 7th. But while the semifinals will be starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 p.m. Eastern Time, the championship game will kick off at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 10 10 a.m. if you live in the uh, PST, and even earlier, depending on where else you might live. Balser tweeted, If you really cared about women's sports, you would actually put us 
at prime time. Thanks in advance. Uh, <laughs> the location for this year's knockout matches has not been set. Last year, Portland Thorns finished with the best record in the group stage, and that march started at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. local in Portland. Balser said, I would love to see someone look into an NWSL player's eyes and tell them they have to eat pregame meal between 6 and 7 a.m. <laughs> the NWSL received criticism for scheduling an early West Coast kickoff for its championship last November. The game was slated to begin at 9 a.m. PT at Providence Park, but players including Ashlyn Harris and Rachel Corsi, but that quickly changed when players Ashlyn Harris and Rachel Corsi raised their voices in discontent and the game was eventually moved to Lynn Family Stadium in Louisville, putting the kickoff time at noon local. Balser also expressed dismay that the Challenge Cup knockout stage overlaps with the regular season, which starts on April 29th. Balser tweeted, Where is the common sense? Common sense in all caps. Now your reward for making the Challenge Cup final is having to play three games in seven days. I cannot sit idly by as the well-being of the players is put in jeopardy by bogus kickoff times and high physical demand. Let's be better. I think we can be better. I think statements like this can encourage us to be better, and I am hopeful that the response will be similar to those made in the past. A new voice could be heard during Chelsea versus Reading in the Women's Super League earlier this month when Emily Heeslip could be heard talking to her assistants and players during the game. Heeslip is a referee and she and her assistants became the first to all wear microphones, providing an insight into their decision-making process during the heat of the game. When the match got underway, all those listening could hear how often Heeslip and her assistants, Sari Williams, Georgia Ball and Louise Saunders communicated during 90 minutes as part of an experiment that was led by broadcaster Sky Sports. Each time the ball was placed behind the defense, Heeslip would shout, Now! alerting assistance to a possible offside call. If the attacker was onside, clear would be shouted to allow the game to continue. Waiting, waiting, flagging was the response if the forward had strayed beyond the last defender. This created an opportunity to gain an understanding of how officials react to different match situations. A crowd of players impeding Saunders' view of the ball as it headed towards the touchline led her to shout, I can't see, I can't see. Or when the ball would go out of bound and it was clearly Chelsea's possession, blue, blue would be the only words she said. Sometimes, he slip would provide some commentary. After a firm but fair tackle by Chelsea's Aaron Cuthbert, Heeslip said, She loves a challenge, does Aaron. And other great moments were offered. In fact, there was a major flashpoint in the second half when Chelsea forward Beth England was fouled in the box for a penalty. Those listening were able to hear how the referee told the players to remain outside the area before the ball was kicked, told spot kicker England to wait for the whistle and reminded Reading goalkeeper Grace Maloney to have one foot on the line. Heeslip said to Maloney and pointing to one of her assistants, she's watching. England confidently dispatched that free kick 
It was one of five goals that Chelsea scored on the night in a very dominant victory. And it was interesting that Bibiana Steinhaus-Webb, a former referee and women's select group director at the Professional Game Match Officials Limited, mentioned her hopes that the experiment will give fans a greater insight and understanding of the officials' jobs. She said so much information is shared within the team, which is crucial to making the right decision. All these pieces of information need to come together to build a full picture. We want to communicate this to a wider audience and really let people know what is going on on the field of play. I hope it will show how professionally the officials take their job, how much work on the field of play through the 90 minutes they must do, how focused they are, how much interaction takes place. Interestingly, this was not the first time a referee wore a microphone in an English football game. In 1989, David Ellery was mic'd up during a Division I match between Arsenal and Millwall for a TV documentary, which also included footage of the referee's preparations before and after the game. And in 2019, Australian referee Jared Gillette, who is now a Premier League official, wore a microphone for his final A-League match between Brisbane Roar and Western Sydney Wanderers. Now, the thing I like about this is that when you have an insight into what officials are experiencing and how they're communicating during a game, you can provide the fans with an opportunity to understand why things are happening and what the delays are. If there is one thing that is perhaps the most frustrating to a fan, to any observer in a match, is to see something that feels very clear-cut and straightforward that doesn't appear to be addressed in a timely fashion, as if there is further debate that is uh, ongoing and yet if you're watching and that's not being made clear to you there is no understanding for why there would be the need for additional debate but hearing the voices of the referees and their assistants communicating what perhaps might be the potential delay i think could really offer fans um, greater clarity and also for the organizations, greater transparency about why officiating decisions are made for the reasons they're made and what it is that fans can understand. Do I think this means that they will stop arguing and complaining about calls? Most definitely not. And I'm sure that there's a degree of concern on the part of officiants that they don't want to have everything they're thinking and saying be available for scrutiny, but you're already being scrutinized if you're official. So I think if you're really going to worry about this, you shouldn't even become an official. And if you do, you should expect that all of your decisions will be questioned and that the more information available, the more that can be criticized, but also the more that can be lobbied in your defense for why you make a decision and what your reasons were and whether somebody agrees or disagrees, if that's what you believe, we've reached a point now where arguing with someone over what they believe is really only going to lead to more argument. Whereas instead, understanding where someone's coming from, whether you agree with it or not, at least allows there to be, as I said, greater clarity and hopefully greater transparency. That's going to do it for me for this episode. Thanks for hanging out and catching all these great stories with me on Chips and Channels. And should you have a great one you would love to share with me, check the liner notes for all the ways you can get in touch. Let me know about a story you think we should have on here. Thanks again for listening. Tell a friend and bye for now.